Good morning and welcome everyone to a very full service in many different ways. This morning we're going to uh, look at the meaning of baptism in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. So if you want to leaf in your Bible to 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. And once you found it, I am going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, please. And these are the words of the living God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. And you may be seated, and may God bless the reading of his word. So, as we have many visitors, maybe now is as good a time as any, uh, to say that one of the things we do here, and this is in your bulletin, one of the things we do at Trinity is family-integrated worship. That means we don't send people different directions by their age group in the morning because this is one family of God. Uh, and so, as one of my favorite contemporary theologians, Jim Jordan, has said, every time a baby cries in church, a demon loses his wings. So, if you have a restless little baby, be thankful. That is a sign of life, and that is a sign of the future for God's kingdom. So please, take it with gladness. So this is an exciting season for us as a new church. On June the 5th, we baptized four adults on the profession of their faith. Uh, and today we are going to do the same for eight teens. And before we do that, we want to look and think about what is it that we are doing. And I want to suggest to you, as we just saw in our text, that we live in a world of symbols. And that might seem counterintuitive to us. Many of us have been catechized for 13 years of uh, our education uh, in a secular environment where the most important start of every day would say, whatever you're going to learn here today, whether in biology or in math, God has nothing to do with it because we're neutral, we're secular. So everything you're going to learn today is in no way uh, rooted in who God is. God has nothing to do with reality. And after a period of time of that, we start to lose the romance of the symbolism and the meaning that God has put in the world. And once you separate facts from reality, eventually even facts start to become nebulous things as they indeed have in our time. We need to see that God is Lord of all so that we can see not just that there's a basis for facts in the world, but there's a basis for meaning. We don't just live in a world of cold, hard facts. We live in a world that is full of meaning. Okay? And the materialist worldview, uh, apart from God's word, is unable to account for so many things, even though many of us have just taken it for granted, because that's all we've been instructed in. But here's what materialism is incompetent to do. A world without God at the top of all knowledge is incapable of saying anything about goodness, about truth, about beauty, about justice, morality, the value of things, or even to make a bare minimum distinction between the difference between biological life 
and what it is to truly live. Thankfully, the materialists and the secularists are dead wrong, and symbols remain. And these symbols are as intriguing as they are inescapable. Uh, And so think about this. Uh, We take things so for granted, but think about this. that The way things move from the immaterial world to the material world and back again. Right now, my head is full of thoughts, which you cannot put on a scale. You cannot measure them. They don't smell like anything. I am communicating those immaterial thoughts through vibrations in my throat and teeth. Invisible waves are going to your ears. They're circling around and turning into immaterial thoughts again in your head. That's how symbols work. Isn't that incredible? Immaterial, material waves, immaterial. How do you explain that apart from a God who is Lord of the material and the immaterial world? He is the Lord of heaven and earth. The same thing just happened when you looked at your Bibles. Okay, so we turned a bunch of trees and animal skin and then ink on paper, and you read that, and that somehow created thoughts in your head. That is the power of symbols. That's how symbols work. Symbols are inescapable, and if we stop and think about them, they're intriguing. So, when Christians are confronted with the bland rival of materialism or secularism, the church and us Christians have largely made two opposite mistakes. So those who are more theologically liberal start to see a world of symbols and they say, okay, well, well, if the story of Jonah has got a symbolic meaning, I guess it doesn't really matter whether Jonah ever lived. Whether this is a true account or whether this is a fairy tale, it doesn't matter because of the symbolism. But you take a few steps down that path and your whole Bible falls apart. Okay? History starts to not mean anything The actual physical world starts to not mean anything. It all comes unraveled if the symbols take over to the expense of the real world. And then, those of us who are on the more conservative side uh, might commit the error of fundamentalism. And we see how the symbols get abused by the liberals. And so we insist on the historical events. We insist on the, the reality of things, which is true and good and right, Uh, But it fast becomes, uh, and I love the analogy of a foreign businessman who comes on a business trip to North America and and he gets taken out to a karaoke bar and maybe gets a little overserved and he goes up and he sings, uh, have you ever seen the rain? And and he he nails it. He knows that song, he's heard it uh, a million times, he hits every note, every inflection, he knows every lyric perfectly, he knows everything about that song except for what it means. And too often Christians are like that. We know the names of the books of the Bible. We know the minor prophets. We know the major prophets. We know the names of the apostles. We know the historical timeline. We know everything about the Bible except for what it means. Because we've cut ourselves off from the world of symbols. That in-between, that portal that takes us from the material world to the immaterial God. And as Christians, we want to think like Christians all the way down. And this means we want to honor the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all reality, physical or otherwise. And so this means that the historical real world actually matters. And that real world is full of symbols. And even once we start to see symbols, because we love ourselves first and foremost as sinful fallen creatures... Uh, we tend to think that our experience of things is the ultimate thing, right? So, so we might look at our wedding ring as a symbol and see, well, that's pointing to the ultimate reality of marriage, right? Because I experience marriage. What could possibly be higher than my lived experience? Uh, 
And this too is a mistake. Right? Uh, Because marriage itself is a symbol of something else. Your experience, your lived experience is not the high watermark. Right? And you see this all the time. Uh, You know, when we become the ultimate thing, soon the story of David and Goliath becomes a story about me. Right? David serves as a symbol of me. I'm the most important thing and uh, and as I manage my farm, I take the five smooth stones of animal care and financial uh, management, and, and it becomes a story about me, and the whole thing is lost. We need to see that our lived experience itself is part of the symbolism that points us ultimately to the living God. So, we see, using our marriage again, that the relationship between a man and a woman in their marriage is actually a symbol of Christ and his church. But even here, let's think carefully. Did God look down the corridors of time and he saw that we would invent something called human marriage and then after he sent Jesus to earth, he said, hey, you know what? Now that those humans have done this marriage thing, that's kind of like Christ in the church. I'm going to use that as a symbol. Not at all. Again, this is backwards. God had the church in mind before the foundation of the world and so before creation began, He created man and woman, physical human beings that you could touch at a physical place on this planet, and he created them as symbols for the greater reality of his church. Okay, So it's not like God sees down the corridor of time, sees what we're going to do, and then he finds word pictures to help us. The reality is the symbol of what he is doing. He designed it that way. Let's not get it backwards. So once we see this, we see that symbols serve as pictures of a reality that is far beyond them. And then we start to see the Bible and the biblical worldview as uh, full of stories, parables, and symbols which help us to understand not just the content, but the romance and the intrigue of seeing the world rightly. To understand the big story, we need to see ourselves as much smaller than we tend to, And we need to see God as much bigger as we tend to. Jesus is not your co-pilot. Jesus is not the supporting character in the drama of your life. You are the bit player in the long drama of human history and the story that he is telling throughout the cosmos. And the amazing thing about God's stories, unlike our stories which stay in the world of the imaginary, when God tells a story, it comes to real life. When God tells a story, a world comes into existence. And light and darkness get physically separated. And man and woman come alive. And flying creatures and swimming creatures and walking creatures fill the earth. That's the difference between God's imagination and ours. Is his imagination creates something out of nothing. It creates ex nihilo. And we have a physical, real world with all kinds of interesting creatures as a result. So when we get to a passage like the one we just read that connects our practice of baptism to Noah's Ark, we shouldn't think that Peter just sat down and, and, you know, after the church had started baptism, he thinks back to the Bible stories and the flannel graphs he grew up with in Sunday school. and says, hey, you know what? We use water in baptism. I remember my Sunday school teacher telling me a story about water in the Old Testament that involved Noah, so I'm just going to make a, a connection here to help people understand. Again, backwards. God wanted to tell a story ahead of time which would symbolize his plans for baptism, and so he created a real historical flood. Baptism was first in God's mind, and then the symbol of the flood came about in history. 
So as real as Noah and the flood and the ark all were, God put them in the story so that he could later tell his people this story over and over, generation after generation, a story about law and grace, about death and resurrection, and then how he seals these things through Christian baptism. So in other words, baptism didn't develop by us humans to reenact Noah's flood. Noah's flood happened at least in part because God had already decided on the symbol of baptism and he wanted to tell a real-life story so that we would discuss it with our children for 4,000 years so that when we get to that point in the story in which baptism happens, we understand what it's doing. Okay? Because for 4,000 years we've been telling that story about coming safely through the water. Now we start to catch on when the reality comes. And so in our text, it says in verses 18 through 20, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And this is the basis for the gospel. The gospel is symbolized here in baptism, but the ground of it, the reality of it, is the life, death, resurrection, and ultimately the ascension of Jesus Christ. Christ came as a mediator between God and man. And it is in Christ and God that man and God make contact with each other. They touch in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is important. Because Jesus Christ is fully God, he alone is able to earn the righteousness that you and me need to stand before the living God. Who can satisfy God's holy demands? No one but God himself. And this is why Jesus must be fully God. He has to provide us with the righteousness that we need to stand before God. However, Jesus is also fully man. And that means he is able to serve as a true representative for fallen humanity. Nothing else could represent us before God other than another one of us. So Jesus must be fully God and fully man. It's not 50-50. He is 100% God, 100% man. If you don't understand it, don't sweat it. No one has. But the Bible teaches it, and we must affirm it. Only the man can retrace Adam's missteps and then become the second Adam who represents us uh, and stands in as a representative on our behalf. And so, again, because Christ is the place where God and man are able to finally touch each other once again, an exchange is made between what the text calls the righteous and the unrighteous. And the substitution takes place uh, in Christ's death. And we often think about the one-way substitution, uh, that our sin goes on Jesus and uh, he atones for that sin through his death, and that is absolutely true. What we often miss is that the righteousness that he earned as a man by keeping God's law perfectly also gets transferred on to us when we come to him in saving faith. There is a two-way exchange. So all the curses that were built up in Adam and in his children get put on Christ's shoulders. And in exchange, the righteousness that Christ earned as a man walking on this earth and obeying God gets put on our shoulders like a robe of perfect righteousness. When you stand before God, if you are in Christ, he does not see you. He sees you covered in the righteousness of Christ. He sees his son, Jesus, and on that basis, 
He is able to say that you are righteous, you are holy, you are perfect, and you may enter into his eternal rest. Verse 19 here is one of the most challenging verses that you'll find in the New Testament, and so we're not going to do a deep dive on it. But I will try to summarize what I think it's saying, uh, and that is this. Christ's soul did not descend into hell, as in punishment, while he died. It did descend, however, into Hades. And there's a difference between those two things. We know that he told the thief that he would be in paradise with him that day, so clearly he did not go into hell, as in punishment. However, while he is in Hades, and there's a chasm there, and you can think of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and they can see each other. There's a great chasm in Hades, which is, Hades is just the place of all departed souls. Uh, And there's kind of two sides to it, uh, what's called Abram's bosom for the righteous, and what's called Tartarus, or the nether gloom, or the gloomy darkness on the unrighteous side, as these people wait for the final judgment. But while there, Christ preaches across this chasm, that separates the just from the unjust, and he is announcing his victory over death and over Hades before he is resurrected back to physical life. And verse 20 indicates that the spirits that were imprisoned here were those that perished in the days of Noah. And it's interesting that it's these souls that are singled out because all the souls of all the departed would be uh, in one of these realities, uh, either enjoying the presence of God or feeling the torment of what would eventually become hell. And the end of verse 20 shows the significance of this time period since it talks about the eight persons who were saved through the water at this time. The souls in prison to whom Christ is announcing his victory are significant because these were exactly the mockers and the scoffers in the days of Noah. And seemingly, this is the point in human history at which the world bottoms out. From this point on, God is building covenant after covenant and moving things uh, towards his son. So this is an especially wicked time in human history uh, in the days of Noah. And then that is explained further in verses 21 and 22. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so verse 21 clearly connects baptism to the fact that Noah's ark, and, or Noah's family, was brought safely through the water. And it says here that the baptism in itself doesn't save. The baptism, the water, are not magical things, as though the water itself did something. And this is why the text says that it's not as a removal of dirt from the body. The water does no work apart from the symbolism. The point of the water is that it is a symbol which connects us to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so our whole text could be summarized like this. When God came to judge the world in Noah's day, he used water to judge it. And this water was responsible for the death of the old world into which Noah was born. Yet this same water is what kept Noah's ark afloat so his family could be saved through that water. And Christ follows the same pattern of Noah's flood. He gets drowned in the sea of God's judgment, and he dies. But that same holy judgment from God also raises Christ from the grave, and when he is raised back up, he brings an entire church out with him. So when we are baptized, we must also follow these same steps symbolically. 
we go down into the water in judgment as a reminder that the old sinful man must die. He cannot be reformed. He has to die. You have to die to be born again. However, once the old man has died at the bottom of the sea of God's wrath, victory in Christ is announced and a new man comes up out of this water. And so the steps of baptism, and particularly the symbolism that immersion provides, gives us a picture of how we are saved. First by dying, and then by being made alive as a new creation. And the symbols, and and this pattern is important. And that's why, for those of you who are guests here, you might notice in our bulletin, we have these five C's of covenant renewal worship, and that's to get the whole pattern of this dying and being raised back up into our bloodstream. It has to be part of the pattern so it becomes natural for us to think in these categories. That's also why every Sunday here we read the law of God and then we read an assurance of pardon because we are forgetful. We need to be reminded every week that God's law kills us and that his grace makes us alive again as a new creature. And when we see it about baptism and about water, a bunch of other things in the Bible start to make sense when it's talking about water. Water is talked about both positively and negatively in Scripture. And so this isn't the only place in Noah's story where you you hear about the judgment of water, right? Jonah is judged in water. Noah, of course, is judged in water. Christ, in his ministry, has to calm a sea because the sea is a dangerous place. And when you read in Revelation 21 about the sea shall be no more, well, what does that mean? Okay, I like ocean sunsets. But the sea is a threatening thing in the biblical conception. And so it's a sign of God's peace and eternal tranquility that the sea shall be no more. The waters of judgment are gone. And positively, Scripture also speaks with water in terms of cleansing. Before you could go into the temple, there was a laver full of water to clean yourself. The priests had to clean themselves. When a baby is born, it is born through water. Okay, and the Bible uses that imagery when it talks about the rebirth. This happens through blood and water. These are all present. And these things are also present in the story of Moses and the Israelites going through the Red Sea. And it's the same water that destroys God's enemies, the Egyptians, that allow for the safe passage of God's people. And again, in the three days that Christ was dead, he was not in some kind of process of decay or losing or soul sleep or something like that. Rather, he is marching right through the waters of God's judgment so you don't have to. Even when he appears to be at the bottom of this sea, he is announcing his victory to those ancient souls who are still continuing their long war against God. And when he comes back up, first to earth, and then ascending back to heaven 40 days later, it becomes plain to all that as verse 22 says, he is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers all having been subjected to him. The old order has died and the new order is being raised up. There's a new creation coming and it is under the lordship of Jesus Christ who has all rule on heaven and on earth, which we frequently forget. For you candidates, I want to make special application. All of you are at this point because this spiritual death and resurrection has already happened in your life. The old you has already died. And the new you is here to tell everyone about it today. So what we're going to do today is sealing that reality with a sign and a symbol of baptism. And this is a benefit both for you and for everyone else who's here with us this morning.
For you, this is something that you will be able to look back on for the rest of your life. When you are tempted to doubt God's promises to you, you can look back at your baptism and remember that he has given you a new heart. He's given you the gift of faith to trust in him. He's put his name on you. That's why you're called a Christian. And he is about to give you the symbol of baptism as a reminder of all of this, much like a couple gives each other rings as symbols to help remember each other and their vows. So baptism is God's promise to you. And like a wedding, in one, day you are going, in one way you're going to walk out of here exactly the same as you came. You're going to look the same. Your eye color will be the same. Uh, your hair will be the same. You will weigh the same. So in one sense, nothing has changed. However, like a wedding, when you walk out of here, everything will have changed. Your whole life is different. And for others who are not being baptized here, this is a reminder that we are witnesses to this great event for these young people. And by being here, like witnesses to a wedding, you are also showing your willingness to pray for these teens, to help to mentor them, to give them guidance and correction as necessary. And because baptism is a physical dramatization of the gospel of Jesus, if you are a believer, perhaps you can be encouraged and strengthened as you recall God's promises to you in your own baptism. You can maybe remember that Christ went down into the sea of judgment on your behalf and he came out victorious, raising you to new life. Your body is not going to stay in the ground forever, but will also be resurrected just like Jesus was. This is his promise to you. And if you are here and you do not know Christ in a saving way, then what you are going to encounter this morning is not just the gospel in spoken word, the preached word, but also as a reenactment to make it vivid to all your senses. So your eyes and your ears are also involved in this. If you want to live forever, you must die now. If the old you is going to stay alive much longer, you are going to a future in which you are going to die forever. If you want to... Uh, well, as the saying goes, those who die once or those who are born once will die twice, those who are born twice will only die once. Okay? You will die, whether this is entirely on your terms or not, God is presenting you uh, with what you must do if you want to live forever, if you're going to face a second eternal death, or whether your death is just the portal to eternal life. Somebody has to satisfy the demands that God has placed on your life for perfect holiness. And if you attempt to do this on your own, you are on a fool's errand. You will stay in the water of judgment forever. If you place your faith in Christ, however, he has already faced this judgment on your behalf so that you can be raised back up to life out of the water with him. And with that, let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for these young people. I want to thank you for what you do in baptism for the way you involve our senses and uh, connect us to a world of symbols which gets us out of our own small little experience uh, to see your glory, to see you who, for who you are, and to see the way these symbols connect uh, to your character because, Lord, we cannot see you as you actually are. You condescend to us in symbols to help us understand. Lord, because we cannot see you face to face. You are too good. You are too holy. But Lord, I pray now that as we do this, I pray that you would use these things to strengthen believers, 
uh, and to confront unbelievers with what needs to happen if they want to enjoy you forever. Lord, be with each one here. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to work. I pray that you'd be uh, with these young people as they share what you have done in their life with us. Give them boldness. Give them joy as they do this. Lord, and for those of us who are witnesses, uh, remind us of our task to mentor, to encourage, and to pray for these young people as we want to encourage them to live a long obedience to you. Thank you for this, and we commit the rest of this time into your kind and fatherly hands. We pray this all in the strong name of the resurrected Christ. Amen. I'll leave you with the benediction from Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, so please receive it. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please go in peace.